speech by Lord Dunglass or Alec Douglas Hume. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Houghton. Speech given to the House of Commons on 28th March 1950 by Alec Douglas Hume. It falls to my lot to congratulate very sincerely the Honourable Member for Hammersmith North. He need not have been diffident about making his maiden speech, and we hope we shall hear him on many other occasions. If I may say so to him, he has endeared himself particularly to me, because he put out of this house a former member who used often to cross swords with me in foreign affairs debates in a previous parliament. The reason why we asked for this debate at this time was that we had a very strong impression that the government, in this most important field of national policy, were marking time. And nothing that has been said from the other side of the house today has removed that impression. If I may quote two sentences used by the two right honourable gentlemen most responsible for foreign affairs, I would quote the Foreign Secretary who, after my right honourable friend the leader of the opposition made his speech in Edinburgh in relation to the Russian deadlock, said, roughly speaking, I have done my best. I would also quote the Prime Minister who, in the debate on defence in this House only a week or so ago, in reference to implementing the findings of the Colombo Conference and the Atlantic Treaty, said that in these matters one cannot force the pace. However much the Foreign Secretary may have achieved, and he has much to his credit, we shall not gain security in this country by resting on the Right Honourable Gentleman's laurels, nor can we possibly afford in this country at this present time to mark time in our foreign policy. We on these benches have a deep conviction that, that it is Great Britain's role in world affairs to take the lead, and unless we force the pace at this time, many another country which finds itself within the Russian orbit will lose its freedom. The first plea, and here I join with the Honourable Member for Hammersmith North, the first plea I would make to Honourable Gentlemen on the other side of the House is this that they should take positive action, and that they should begin by taking positive action in respect of what is called the Cold War. We have heard a good deal in the speeches today about the Cold War. Of course, the Cold War is relentless and menacing. Russia has perfected a technique in this matter of using the Communist Party first to probe and then to soften the weak spots in any national resistance and always behind the communist spearhead are the armed forces of the Soviet Union ready to mobilize. That is perfectly true. Although the situation is grim, I believe that, as the Honourable Member for Aberdeenshire East said in his speech, this is a situation which we have to face and which may last for a very long time. There are factors in it which are not without encouragement and may even be to our advantage. Communism, as it has spread over Europe, has created an opposite force. And that opposite force is based on the most potent and powerful of all things, 
and that is moral and religious conviction. We should be trying to turn that to our advantage. It is now revealed, beyond doubt, in many countries that may have had doubts after the war, that Russian policy is no more than a ruthless exercise in power politics, and the recognition of this fact should give us the opportunity to bring into alliance many countries who, before this situation was revealed, were looking at each other with eyes of suspicion. Another fact, which I would bring to the Minister's notice, and which I think has escaped attention generally, is this, that in no case has Russia either moved her own troops or ordered one of her satellites to move their troops, where she has had a clear warning from the United States of America or from ourselves. In no case has that happened. I make this suggestion. When we looked at Europe three or four years ago, it was quite possible to believe that communism would overrun France, Germany and Italy. But there has been a spontaneous natural reaction, and the tide of communism has been pushed back in France, Germany and Italy, and even in Eastern Europe at the present time there are certain rocks beginning to appear in this communist sea. I believe that the intelligent use of political warfare, if we like to call it such, certainly of political propaganda intelligently directed, can, at this very moment, save two countries and bring them out of the Russian orbit. I'm not going to name the countries, but I think that if intelligent political propaganda were directed into them, they could be saved and are ripe for saving now. I know that we do direct a certain amount of political propaganda into Eastern Europe, but I do not believe that it is coordinated and that it is nearly as efficient and effective as it could be. There is a very large and effective broadcasting station in Turkey. I ask the Minister of State to think of this. Will he, from Norway through Western Europe to Turkey, see if he can organize a coordinated propaganda offensive into the satellite countries on Russia's borders. I could not help thinking when I saw the obvious concern and terror with which Russia views any knowledge of the Western world being brought into satellite countries and behind the Iron Curtain, that that is a measure of her fear. We ought to be all the more insistent to push a knowledge of the Western world into those countries and to help those people, the churches and others, who are fighting a valiant battle behind the Iron Curtain for freedom. It seems to me that for a comparatively small output in money and energy, we might achieve a great success which would have very significant repercussions on the military planning which we must do should a war develop and start in that area. I now turn, in the short time remaining to me, to the consideration of an overall security system. I think it is not unfair to say that Russia knows absolutely what she is doing in her own foreign policy. She has an overall foreign policy, she has regional foreign policies, and she can switch from one to the other region whichever serves her best at the time. I believe it is not unfair to say that at the present time, after five years of foreign policy conducted by the Right Honourable Gentleman, His Majesty's Government have no overall constructive foreign policy and are weak in every region which we ought to be in a position to defend. 
I looked round at these regions, India, the Middle East and Western Europe, and in none of them are we strong enough either to impress our enemies or to gain the confidence of our friends. An honourable member who has just made his maiden speech said, we must be bold and strong, but the gaps that I see do not enable us to be so. There are yawning gaps in the Far East, the Middle East and in Europe in the diplomatic and the political fields. I want to direct the attention of the Minister of State to the problem. Let us take the Far Eastern region. The Foreign Secretary and the party opposite cannot escape responsibility in this matter because it was they who created a vacuum of power in India. I'm not criticising them for leaving India, but I am criticising them for scuttling out in a hurry. All the way through history, a vacuum of power has been, it always will be so, a temptation to an aggressor which cannot be resisted. We left India before India was able to defend herself and before India and Pakistan had had a chance to settle their dispute over Kashmir. I asked the Minister of State if the Foreign Secretary is, so to speak, knocking the heads of India and Pakistan together. Is he continuously keeping it at India and Pakistan to settle this difficulty? Let him realise that unless that difficulty between India and Pakistan is settled, there is no basis at all for the continental defence of India. Let me turn for a moment to the Middle East and to Turkey. It is well known that Turkey has for many years now been sustaining a full armament programme and that that is putting a very severe strain on Turkish economy. Is the right honourable gentleman satisfied that Turkey is in a position to meet any challenge that may come from Russia in that part of the world. The socialist government lends money fairly freely about the world and I would far rather lend money to Turkey than to Burma because I am convinced that it would show a far higher dividend in security. The Turks would fight. There is another problem which His Majesty's government seemed to me to be neglecting in the Middle East the coordinated defence of those great regions inhabited by the Arabs. When this question is raised, I am told, Oh, but His Majesty's government think that Turkey ought to be organise these regions into a great defence system. The Turks will fight, but they have not the traditions or the diplomatic authority to organise those regions. Great Britain and Great Britain alone can do it and I asked the Right Honourable Gentleman to see to it now that conversations are started so that effective opposition can be organised in that area to any advance that Russia may take in that direction. Lastly, I come to Europe. I shall not deal with the question of how far Germany should be rearmed, but I express the hope that if Germany is rearmed in any measure, it should be done with the absolute agreement of the French and the Americans. I want to draw the attention of the government to one aspect of European defence to which far too little attention has been given, the Scandinavian Republic and their contribution to the Atlantic Pact. We may put our frontier in future on the eastern frontier of Germany, or we may contemplate the possibility that Russia will advance across Europe. In the first case, if we have our frontier on the eastern frontier of Germany, 
Scandinavia is an essential flank guard. In the other case, if we contemplate the possibility of Russia advancing across Germany, then the Scandinavian peninsula again is in a strategic position which might prevent the Russians ever undertaking that venture. I understand that Norway, under the Atlantic Pact, has made certain reservations, that she is a member of the Atlantic Pact and subscribes to it, but will not allow the Americans or ourselves to have bases in Norway. Could the Minister of State and the Foreign Secretary say to the Norwegians, who ought to be able to appreciate it by now, that it is no use taking these half measures? In modern warfare, Unless one has a very advanced state of preparation, one is condemned before one starts. Every argument seems to me to point to the necessity for the Foreign Secretary reopening with the Norwegian government the question of Norway allowing both air and naval bases to ourselves and to the United States of America. Lately, Mr. Aitchison has made a most helpful series of speeches and has talked of the necessity for total diplomacy. I agree with him that nothing short of total diplomacy is possible in the present situation if we are to survive. And I point once more to those great gaps at the diplomatic and political level and say to the Minister of State that until these gaps are filled, our military preparations will not make any sense at all. I ask him to ask the Foreign Secretary both in respect of India and of Turkey and of the Sc Scandinavian Peninsula, in particular Norway, to start talks with a view to completing an overall intelligible system of defence. Our prime objective in all these regions must be to make ourselves so strong that we are feared by the enemy and gain the confidence and respect of our friends. And we must aim in every region to make them into a coherent whole so that in the event of war, we can build up the grand alliance on which always the safety of this country has depended. End of speech. Recording by Nicholas Houghton.